Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as you can imagine, I will be reflecting shortly uh, with your guidance, because I've got some brilliant emails relating to it, uh, what the Conservative Party conference tells us about the uh, Conservative Party, the governing party, this party that tends to rule uh, from Westminster and has had 13 years of power. Then, as I say, I'm going to read out some emails related to it, which shine more light on this party and its leader and its mood. Um, And, yeah, before all of that, a couple of uh, notices. Just very quickly, Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place on October the 23rd. After the by-elections, after all the party conferences and much more, and before the rest of this important autumn takes shape. So we need to gather together to make sense of it all and have a laugh and a glass of wine. And you can get the tickets on the King's Place website or on the blurb for this podcast. The other thing is we're in a kind of insanely competitive field, those of us now in the cooperative, um, with uh, podcasts erupting on a daily basis. So if you could uh, leave a review, tell one friend or family member to start subscribing to Rock and Roll Politics, that would be fantastic. It makes a very big difference. Third, thanks to all of those of you who subscribe to Patreon. There will be a new episode on political rivals coming out this uh, month uh, and more about that next week. So yeah, there are the notices and what a week. We've got the Rutherglen by-election at the end of it and now the Tory party conference. Some party conferences kind of fade away and don't tell us very much like some by-elections. Some are significant like the Rutherglen by-election and like the uh, Conservative Party conference gathering in Manchester this week. And you know something, I'm still very young and vibrant and youthful, but I was at the Conservative Party conference, the last one before the 1997 general election, Uh, the autumn of 1996, John Major, Prime Minister, the end of that long period of Conservative rule. And what was so interesting about that party conference is you could feel that it was the end. There's something curious about a gathering that has a chemistry. Uh, People almost don't need to speak. You can feel it. And you could feel it then. And although I make no predictions about the future, it's too risky. 
but you can feel something very similar now about the Conservatives in Manchester. Indeed, in some ways, it is deeper. Because in 1996, at that last Tory conference before the 97 general election, where they were removed from power big time, there were still big figures around who were able somehow or other to generate, albeit a false sense of hope, something. There were people like Michael Heseltine, Deputy Prime Minister, who was giving interviews saying, look, the economy's growing, and when the economy grows, the governing party wins. There was still that around. And Ken Clark, the Chancellor, who was a popular figure, and so on. It wasn't much in 96. They, there was a, a self-awareness amongst those gathering that power was leaving them and amongst the media, and then it becomes self-fulfilling because the media treats parties with a greater sense of disdain when they can feel the power seeping away, and that reportage means more power seeps away. The reason why, in some ways, it is worse now than in 1996, and by the way, in observing that, I'm not arguing that we are on the edge of a new Labour-style landslide win, but it is worse than 96 in some ways because the divisions are more vivid. Then it was marked, of course, and intense over the issue of Europe. And uh, that was being played out very much in public. Now it is weird. You have uh, Liz Truss returning after a year uh, out of office, a quite extraordinary chutzpah. When I think of when some leaders are forced out of power, how they almost disappear to recover from the trauma. She is back putting her case for tax cuts. That is accompanied by another group of Tory MPs, and this is really interesting, who are saying that they are representing their constituents in uh, proposing that they will vote against any further tax rises. They say it's nothing to do with disloyalty to the government. They are representatives of their local people. They are almost Benite again, Tony Benn, who argued about the importance of local accountability. He met more towards their the local party membership. But in effect, that's what these Tory MPs mean as well. So there's that sort of section. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of differences. Uh, you have cabinet ministers arguing that it wouldn't be a problem if Britain left the European Convention on Human Rights. It is known that some cabinet members are deeply opposed to that. Then you have Suella Braverman, you know, giving an interview to a Sunday paper, slagging off Gary Lineker and uh, Elton John, and there is a constituency for that. But in at a time when there is a sense that nothing works in the UK, as we've been exploring here, to sort of focus in on something Elton John has said, it it it, it feels puny even in its populist reach, and. Uh, then you have the issue of HS2, which is so fascinating. Um, there is a, a major policy that this government is theoretically committed to and recommitted to under Johnson. And you cannot have anyone from the Prime Minister downwards saying what the current position is. Now, apart from anything else, 
that is uh, messy politics, that the proposition that they were going to end HS2 at Birmingham, not build to Manchester, leaking before the party conference, and instantly ending it not in Euston in central London, but in some place miles away. No doubt when Sunak and his advisers gathered together to prepare for this conference where they wanted finally to try and personify in the form of Sunak change, which they had to do and should have done a year ago. You know, they were in deep trouble a year ago, the Conservatives. Sunak came in and that was his space to personify change. But now they're doing it now and they thought, right, yeah, what we're going to do at Manchester is we're going to expose the appalling costs of HS2, but say, but make it a good news story. That's what we're going to do by saying we're going to spend the money on improving the rail links in the north of England. But of course, the way it's come out, it looks as if they are wholly indifferent uh, to rail links to the north, because the focus has been their plan to scrap Birmingham to Manchester and HS2. And what I think this whole disparate, fragmented conference shows is that Rishi Sunak isn't very good at politics and leadership. There is, incidentally, no reason why he should be. He rose to the top very speedily. He became chancellor at an insanely speedy uh, point, having been chief secretary to the treasury in the cabinet when Dominic uh, Cummings sacked uh, uh, Javid, who was uh, chancellor at the time. And now he is prime minister in, I completely acknowledge, a pretty challenging, dark context. In measuring the strength of leadership of an individual, you always have to look at the context in which he or she is operating in. And there is no doubt, after Johnson and Truss uh, and Brexit, though Sunak, of course, is partly responsible for Brexit, an avid supporter, although he's never made a speech on it in full about Brexit, he inherits a tough, tough context. A tired governing party split along many different lines. Um, And by the way, HS2 are deep split. There are many Tory MPs who think it should continue, as there are within the cabinet, which is of course why, and Johnson has erupted about it rightly actually, And that's why there is this now delay, trying to work out how they manage the politics of it, having allowed it to be uh, leaked in advance uh, that they were doing this. It all comes back in the end. So that's a tough, tough context. But a leader with the skills of uh, a successful prime minister or election-winning leader would have somehow transcended those divisions or made them seem a lot less significant, but Sunak has failed to do so. They obviously work on the assumption, these figures, trust Johnson from the outside with his uh, preposterously paid Daily Mail column, uh, these various MPs from the inside, think two things. Uh, First of all, that they are going to lose and therefore they are positioning themselves for the aftermath but also that Sunak's authority is extremely limited. Now, this is interesting because by 1996, that Tory conference I'm comparing this one to, John Major's authority had declined 
in an extraordinary way, but from a very high point. Major had won the 1992 general election. He therefore had electoral legitimacy. Uh, Sunak did not even win a leadership contest amongst the members, and so is in a much more fragile place uh, than John Major was in 1996. And we are getting these kind of disparate announcements being put out about speed limits, about preparing the ground for tax cuts and so on. But it doesn't cohere in a way that enhances the authority of the leader, the prime minister of the governing party. And that too feeds on itself, because when a prime minister appears weak and incapable of sewing together a fractured party and incapable of projecting a coherent message of hope and renewal, And it is difficult, because in a way he has to disown the immediate past of his own party, Johnson and Truss. But he hasn't done it and can't do it, clearly. That means the opinion polls are bad. And bad opinion polls feed on this perception of a fragile leader and worsens it. And it is a really difficult cycle to escape from. So I think, in a way, uh, the Conservative Party this week is more disjointed than in that pre-election conference in 1996. To be honest, what's so interesting following the Conservative Party, it was never really put back together again. So after that 96 conference, they were slaughtered in 1997. They then had that really traumatic period out of power. Here was a governing party not used to opposition. And William Hague led and lost. Ian Duncan Smith led and had to be removed. Michael Howard took over and lost, uh, and so on. And then Cameron came in, but he didn't put back together the disparate parts. He, to some extent, fleetingly smoothed over, papered over the cracks. But famously on Europe, he never addressed the fundamental division effectively. And ever since, there have been these differing factions. Uh, Sometimes, you see, Johnson pulled it all together by being uh, a cakeist, you know, uh, a Keynesian one moment, a Thatcherite the next moment, a devout uh, Brexiteer of a hardline essence, uh, and then claiming to be an internationalist who will work with our European friends. He put together a coalition that was never going to be sustainable for very long, the December 2019 coalition. And following him to have trust, you need a kind of really big leaderly figure to make sense of all of that. Uh, And Sunak is not it. I am recording this podcast before Sunak speaks uh, on Wednesday. I hope to pop up with a short assessment of that speech as well, kind of bonus podcast. Uh, So do email your thoughts to me as well. Uh, SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. But before that, just one more reflection, despairing reflection about HS2 and what that tells us about Britain and its capacity to deliver and hold to account uh, those who deliver these big, ambitious, Uh, infrastructure projects. 
you see, Sunak is right in some respects. Um, the costs have got out of all control. And it is much more expensive to build these projects here than in France or Spain or Japan or Switzerland. Now, part of it is that uh, the congested nature of parts of Britain, no doubt about that, makes it more expensive. The tunnelling that's involved to avoid sensitive conservative seats, for example. But it's more than that. See, the fact that Sunak is only now leaping on the uh, costs raises a huge question. Again, as we have looked at uh, when we've reflected on the chaos of the trains more generally, who is in control? Who is accountable? See, the government theoretically is, but there is one transport secretary every six months and they never get to grips with it. And those who run HS2 no doubt sense the slippage and the lack of scrutiny. Just perhaps it's not articulated within their thoughts fully, but it is there instinctively and the costs get out of control. And then Sunak takes a look at it and has a heart attack, um, and I'm sure it's genuine, uh, although it is built on, uh, he's a product of the Treasury as well as Goldman Sachs, and the Treasury hates infrastructure projects. They've opposed virtually every single one. But the origins of HS2 are very interesting, and again, are a reflection of the way things are done in Britain. Because the way HS2 got the go-ahead, and by the way, I'm a, a, a a big supporter of it. I think it should go up to Scotland as soon as possible. Um, but I'm also a supporter of every halfpenny being accounted for. And that's what's gone wrong. Um, but the origins were shallow and superficial as they tend to be with these big projects. So what happened was this. Gordon Brown was Prime Minister uh, when uh, the HS2 thing got going. And he was uh, under a lot of pressure from the more ardent followers of Tony Blair. They were out to remove him. The more ardent followers of Tony Blair being a, uh, a as militant as any weak-kneed Corbynista who handed over power after the December 2019 election pathetically. And so the Blairites were out to get Gordon Brown. Remember those, there were those endless attempted internal coups by various Labour MPs out to get... Brown. I mean, it was all insane, a sign of the Labour Party collapsing with exhaustion and confusion um, in the build-up to the 2010 election. And one of the ways in which Brown sought to buttress his authority was to bring in the followers of Tony Blair, who were uh, the most senior and the most revered amongst the more indisciplined insurrectionary Blairites. So he brought in Peter Mandelson, and the other figure who he focused on was Andrew Adonis. And Andrew Adonis had worked for Tony Blair, was uh, idolised uh, by the Blairites. One of the posts he offered Andrew was to be transport secretary. And Andrew Adonis said, I will be transport secretary only if you let me give the go-ahead to HS2. And Gordon Brown, who could be famously forensic, about uh, policy and examine every dot and comma of every policy going through number 10, said yes. He didn't examine in great depth uh, the implications of HS2. The most influential figure on Gordon Brown normally was Ed Balls, and Ed Balls was opposed 
to HS2 at this period said to Brown, don't do it. Don't, don't, uh, it's a, it, 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 the costs will, as ever, Balls was right. He, was, he, he tended to be right, Balls. Uh, he said the costs will overrun. Uh, there are other ways of dealing with this and so on. But Gordon Brown needed Andrew Adonis in the cabinet. Andrew Adonis was a passionate figure on transport, uh, just about the only transport secretary we've had with a passion for transport. Brown overawed Ed Balls and said, no, Andrew is going to be transport secretary. He wants HS2, so on. So that's how it began, to buttress Gordon Brown's precarious position because dissident Blairites were out to get him. And he wanted someone who personified to the Blairites the kind of Blair approach to politics, although in many ways Andrew Donis was different. Andrew Donis revered Blair, but he really, really revered Roy Jenkins, who was a social democrat. Anyway, that's how it began. Uh, now, Andrew Adonis's reasons for giving the go-ahead to HS2 were absolutely right, that uh, capacity had been overstretched on the line, uh, you know, the existing line from Euston to Manchester. So there were two ways of dealing with that. this. Uh, one was to try and work out some fernickety way of updating the line, which all would have caused years of chaos, disruption, no doubt overspend, or aim high and give the UK a high-speed railway line uh, linking London and the North. And there was an absolute logic to that. But then, of course, Labour lost in 2010. Adonis uh, went. Then Osborne and Cameron uh, became as committed. They were committed in opposition too. Then Johnson was. But no one consistently, because, as I say, a different transport secretary every 10 minutes monitored the costs. And now there is an issue about overspend. Um, but I think the answer is, and this is what Sunak should say if he was political, we go ahead, but there must be ways of keeping track of cost and therefore reducing costs, because really strict accountability always reduces cost. But what bad politics of Sunak to turn this party conference partly into one about the fate of HS2, and he can't answer the question about that fate. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's begin with an update uh, from one of our barometer voters in rock and roll politics uh, and it comes from Denise Willier and her mother is the barometer voter uh, was a Tory uh, became disillusioned but the last time we heard from Denise about her mother uh, she was kind of veering a bit about what to do anyway uh, Denise writes latest update from my mum it's curtains for Rishi and the Tories after his announcement about net zero she's an Attenborough Tory who described in a 
uh, so who I described in a previous email. I remember, Denise. And Sunak crossed a big red line. She's also none too pleased about the cancelling of HS2, which she regards as a backward step and not in line with the forward thinking she thinks we should uh, have in this country. Relabor, she thinks Starmer needs more punch, this in line with her view that he lacks oomph and is wishy-washy. Well, Denise will reflect on uh, Labour and Starmer next week with the Labour Party conference. Uh, but thank you for the update. And it highlights this issue uh, with Rishi Sunni. It was very interesting. I spoke to one senior Tory. He told me they were really worried about the Lib Dems in the blue wall seats. Well, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, the motorist friend strategy does not address that problem for Sunak. And he's lost Denise's uh, mother, who was, you know, there to be got, I think. Um, now, maybe he is going to solidify support in some areas. We will see with opinion polls in the coming weeks. Uh, but he's going to lose support as well. And on that very uh, point, John Lamont writes... Uh, such a long time ago was Edinburgh, where you asked the audience on, in one of your shows at the festival, if we thought we were at a turning point with Labour winning the next election. Against the majority, I said the Conservative election machine could still pull off a John Major 1992 election victory. I remember John very well. There were some in the audience that day at the Edinburgh Festival I did a different show every day. Uh, yeah, every day then. And now do a different show, of course, every uh, month more or less at King's Place. So the October one will be completely different. Anyway, here's the twist in the latest email from John. Now, just a few months later, I reverse my position and believe the Conservatives are stuffed. I'd go further and suggest their downfall will come from within, suddenly perhaps through a vote of no confidence. I believe the overwhelming stench of failure permeates Tory MPs and is compounded by Sunak's embarrassing, impetuous teenage political fumbling. Now, this is interesting. I mean, I disagree with John. I think uh, Sunak will lead them into the next election. But here is someone who thought just in August that the Conservatives could well win the next election, like Major one in 1992, who now thinks they're in a real state that, in other words, Sunak has made matters worse since August. And this is his kind of relaunch. Anyway, thank you very much, John, and thanks for attending the uh, shows in Edinburgh. Uh, Tom Bucknell on a, uh, a similar theme. Uh, Hi, Steve, your podcast is amazing. Oh, thank you, Tom. Uh, it seems to think the Conservative Party conference this year is a place where possible candidates are setting out their stall for a possible leadership election. How can the Prime Minister stop this? What does he need to do? The Conservatives are acting like they've lost the election. See, again, that's really interesting. And you're right, uh, Tom. Uh, people are speaking with the next leadership contest in mind and pitching to the party membership rather than the wider electorate accordingly. Now, this did not happen to the same extent in 1996. Uh, the likes of Heseltine and Clark, who were seen as potential leaders, more so actually successors to Major, more so than William Hague, who did succeed her, they were sort of singing from the same hymn sheet in that party conference in 1996. Now it's all over the place. Um, and the reason it is, is because, as I say, Sunak has not 
imposed an authority over his uh, party and cabinet. They're not frightened of him. And fear comes from a sense of a leader being a winner uh, with a coherent sense of purpose that is uh, exciting a country. And then ambitious cabinet ministers shut up and toe the line. Um, and I, I think it's going to be difficult for Sunak to get into that position. Uh, I say in fairness, Sunak, it was a tough, tough inheritance. Uh, but he's made it worse by some of his uh, political um, uh, acts of political ineptitude. Uh, Paul Cruz. Assuming the Tories lose the next election, which seems near certain, is there anything that could stop them lurching further to the right, whether under Suella Braverman or someone else? Yeah, possibly. It depends, really, the context of the defeat, uh, the mood afterwards. But looking at the membership which votes for the next leader, it seems far more likely that they will opt for a figure of the populist right. Um, but it's not inevitable. I say it partly depends on what the scale of the defeat is, if it is uh, a big defeat. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, Alan Pavlin writes, why is it assumed that Rishi Sunak would or even should resign as party leader if he loses uh, the election? It's an interesting point. The reason being, Alan, really what we've been discussing in the podcast and other emails, uh, a sense that uh, the epic task of leadership so far, um, it, he's not been up to it. It is incredibly tough. Uh, you have to be a near genius to get there in this context, and he's not there. However, one thing I agree with you, and Alan gives examples of others who were much older than uh, Sunak, who stayed on and uh, in different contexts. I think if there's a hung parliament uh, and a minority Labour government, Sunak might stay on, actually. A, because he will argue that the defeat was predicted to be a lot worse, but B, that an election, another election could come quite quickly. I can see a context in which he does stay on. Uh, but uh, overall majority Labour government, I think he goes. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Richard Harrison. As the context moved from MPs to the membership and Sunak hit a rough road, Sunak was prepared to say more or less anything in a desperate attempt to win the leadership contest last summer. Uh, and actually, Richard reminds us that although he spoke what he thought in terms of uh, his view of Truss's reckless tax cuts proposals, on which he has been proven correct, he did promise to recklessly scrap all EU retained legislation to an arbitrary deadline, close every Confucius Institute in the country, and the list goes on. And uh, Richard suggests Sunak's doing the same thing here. He's he's claiming to be the real Rishi now, uh, speaking his mind, uh, but he's feeding out policies about 20 mile per hour speed limits and all the rest of it in a panic, as he did during the leadership contest. And I think that's a good point. It's easy to forget that he pledged all kinds of weird things uh, in a desperate attempt to woo that Tory membership and failed. And is he doing the same thing again here now? Um, Harry Lewis, and I think you're right, he is. <laughs> so I think it's a perceptive point. In claiming to be himself, he is not wholly being himself. Harry Lewis uh, says, uh, 
I hugely enjoyed your new book on turning points. Fantastic read. Thank you very much, Harry. Yeah, I should mention, uh, I'll put the link in for the podcast uh, blurb. Uh, Turning points, uh, 1945 to uh, Liz Truss um, is uh, now out and in all good bookshops, etc., etc. And I wrote a piece last week for The Guardian about one element to it, about the imprecision of the centre ground, whether that equips a Labour leader, if uh, it is to be a Labour leader, to come in after the next election and make uh, the hunger for change a turning point. And I've also got a long piece in The New Statesman uh, this week uh, exploring the degree to which uh, the next election will be a turning point. Harry writes, the chapter on Liz Truss is fascinating, as I still feel that her rise is underexplored in the wider context of the Conservative Party. I wanted to ask, was her huge confidence and dogmatic belief uh, a somewhat understandable trait, particularly considering she had featured almost immediately in multiple governments from Cameron to Johnson? Yeah, this is a really good question, Harry. Uh, In my chapter in the book, I argue that though on one level, the Stark Premiership included the most dramatic and striking turning point in modern times, from the Quateng budget to the Jeremy Hunt financial statement, which reversed virtually everything in the budget, and then we got the Sunak Premiership, there were elements that connected all these characters And one of them was that Cameron and Osborne uh, put trust uh, very quickly in the government, in the cabinet, uh, the same one that Hunt served, and they all worshipped to some extent uh, at the feet of George Osborne, who remains an admirer in some respects of Liz Truss. So there are interconnections. So yes, I think there was some justification to trust having this air of confidence. She rose through that government and was promoted by one leader after another to the point where she was foreign secretary when she stood for the leadership. And I think that's a really good point. This figure wasn't properly scrutinised and should have been. Now, uh, very urgent because, to some extent, a lot of us are on the same page, but our white van drive driver, is that the right way of putting it, Andy? Andy Davis keeps us alert to all kinds of opinions whirling around in this confused, bewildered country. Andy writes about GB News, which, of course, is partly connected to what's happening with the Tories. What is their target audience at this party conference? Anyway... Hi, Steve. Driver Andy again. Last email was long, so I'll keep this short. The latest liberal outrage over Lawrence Fox only exists because GB News eagerly facilitated it. And it did that because it appeals to a large, dangerous and sullen percentage of this country. And it's a percentage I work and live within and who, unlike the collective who never watch it, cheer and fist pump every time it pokes the woke. I predict GB News will be as influential here as Fox's in the States in a very short time, precisely because it articulates and legitimises what millions are saying and doing. Thanks for that, Andy. It's a very important point. You see, GB News, I'm told, now gets audiences higher than Sky News. 
Um, and it's not properly regulated. We don't regulate things robustly in Britain. It's another problem. It's it's connected with the HS2 problem. We don't properly sort out uh, uh, regulation in Britain. Um, it's why the water companies get away with stuff and why GB News has. Um, but it reflects and uh, echoes the views of uh, the people Andy works with, hangs out with, and that gives it a power which could, over time, mean that Britain ends up with Fox News, which is, how has this happened when, in theory, impartiality is meant to be part of the broadcasting world? Um, yeah, it's a huge, huge question. So one more. Let's quickly do Anthony uh, Wilson. Uh, on the opening day lecture of my primary PG, uh, PGCE course, and for a bit of fun, um I offer my students pictures of our last three prime ministers in reverse order. So these are uh, uh, adult students, uh, under 35-year-olds. Uh, to the famous thumbs-up image of Boris Johnson, they responded with comments of liar, buffoon, incompetent, corrupt. To an image of Liz Truss, they also responded with the word incompetent. Uh, so far, so predictable. My final picture of Rishi Sunak, however, garnered a response of pure silence. My students had literally nothing to say about him. And Anthony Wilson says he's uh, listened, stirring the roast veg as ever. Uh, yeah, I'd like to sample your roast veg, Anthony, as a vegetarian. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, well, that's interesting, that silence. You see, I, uh, I think it's not insignificant silence because it implies so far nothing, uh, a blank canvas. Now, if Sunak were clever, he could fill that blank canvas um, because it implies that those students still haven't formed a wholly negative view. They just don't know who he is or what he stands for. But you have to be clever in filling a blank canvas against an unruly background. Um, and, well, let's see, as I say, he's speaking on Wednesday in what could be, well, it will be the last prime ministerial conference speech before the uh, general election. Uh, anyway, your students, well, it's unsurprising what they said. They were quite polite about Liz Truss, frankly. Uh, incompetence is pretty polite, uh, what happened just over a year ago. Look, thank you so much. There were some other brilliant emails, but I've just focused on some of the ones relating to the dramas of the Tory party conference uh, this week. And before I go, I'd like to just take a moment, if that's all right with all of you, to say thank you to the Patreon supporters again, without whom this podcast just wouldn't be possible. Uh, I'm going to uh, shout out names of those who subscribe. So I'd like to thank uh, today, uh, I hope get the pronunciations right, uh, Shona McLean, Max Kelly, Richard West, Adrian Lyons, Sean Colston, Colston, Sean, uh, who also uh, wrote a very interesting email this week, Sean, which I'll try and get to at some point. Uh, thank you. And if you'd like to subscribe to Rock and Roll Politics and receive all the exclusive benefits, such as exclusive podcasts and all kinds of things. Uh, I kind of, I've, I've got a, not just a rock and roll politics mug now. I've got a, a mat to put them on. Rock and roll politics mat. Anyway, do click on the link in the show notes. And I said at the beginning, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. Only take a couple of minutes. You know, only if you like it a lot and rave about it. Uh, um, and if you just pass on to a friend, say, oh, yeah, you're interested in politics. Well, there's this polit politics podcast where we really delve deep together. Uh, do subscribe. Uh, that would be great as well. Um, 
And yeah, thank you all for listening today. I say we'll get together briefly, if that's okay, after the Sunak speech. Um, And yeah, take a deep breath. We're into the political whirlwind of the autumn, uh, beginning with these party conferences. Thank you so much. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Bye.